Welcome to City of God, a podcast of the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Dr. Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Join us each week as we engage the city of man with the biblical wisdom of the city of God. Welcome to City of God. Today on the podcast, we have my friend Eric Tietzel. Eric is the president of the Family Policy Alliance of Kansas, and uh, he has worked for numerous outfits in the evangelical and uh, public square world. Uh, he was the director of the Manhattan Declaration for a little while. He worked at uh, he worked with the Values and Capitalism Project at American Enterprise Institute. Uh, he's a graduate of Wheaton College. He likes the Phoenix Suns. Yeah, uh, a lot of jobs in a short period of time. Typical millennial. You're such a millennial. I really am. Um, tell us why you like the Phoenix Suns. Oh, man. Uh, I think it's one of the ways that God uh, has really taught me humility mm-hmm. uh, and patience um, uh, through trials and tribulations of every kind. Mm-hmm. Um, I was born in Phoenix, Arizona. My parents grew up there. Actually, my grandparents um, are from Phoenix, Arizona, which is kind of rare. Um, and uh, uh, my dad was in the Army. We moved a lot when I was a kid, including several years overseas. And so in elementary school, I would get these care packages from my grandparents Um including VHS tapes of Suns games wow. and uh, uh, clippings from the Arizona Republic about them and nice. uh, uh, Suns paraphernalia. I once had a life-size cardboard cutout of the Suns gorilla. I don't know whatever happened to that. Oh, my goodness. Someone needs to probably talk to my wife. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, that started it, and this was at that formative time in life, you know, eight, nine, ten years old, where those political allegiances just mean – Mm-hmm. Political, athletic allegiances, political allegiances just kind of mean everything to you. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, this one's stuck. I can't get over it. Mm. Those are the golden years. Uh, Barkley, Ainge, Dan Marley, Kevin Johnson. Mm. Uh, and then and then it, we were in the wilderness for a while. And then uh, Steve Nash happened. Mm. And uh, some good good times there. Um, and uh, we're, we're back in the darkness. But um, mm-hmm. not so much for you. Congrats, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, the rich get richer in mm-hmm. Boston. Mm-hmm. I like athletic inequality myself. So, okay, well, on the podcast, we are not here to talk about sports primarily, although we could. We, should, we yeah, yeah, that yeah. would be fun. But we're actually here to talk politics and especially conservatism, which is a really strange topic today because. Just, I don't know, in the evangelical world, there isn't going to be a lot of actual discussion of first principles behind mm-hmm. political engagement. Our world has basically, here's a premise of today's podcast, as we've already talked about, Eric, but uh, we'll put it on record. Politics has exploded in the modern world. Everything everything seems to be political. I mean, the 24-hour news cycle really has gone crazy with political chatter, discussion, debate, disagreement, and so on. But I'm not so much interested in in that kind of subject for this discussion. I want to go back to uh, first things, really. And so you've already given us a brief um, tour of, of your background. How did you come to have this interest in politics? You, you now work for and direct an important state-level political entity. Uh, you went to Wheaton, as I said earlier. Did that develop at Wheaton? Where did this uh, originate? Well, uh, first, let me apologize to our listeners. I'm sure they wanted to hear 20 minutes on Chick-fil-A opening in New York City Mm. and the political fallout. 
of that, but maybe we can get to that uh, mm-hmm, later mm-hmm. if you want to. Um, how did I become a, 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 a politically interested and, and a conservative? That's a good question. I think I was kind of born with those intuitions. Um, uh, in high school, I was voted best Republican at a model <laughs> Senate program for okay. my portrayal of North Carolina Senator Jesse Helms. Um, okay. And uh, I I guess that tells you all you need to know about what a cool kid I was uh, in high school. And uh, unlike most people, I went off to college intending to be politically active. Huh. Uh, I was a poli-sci major uh, as a freshman, but then uh, uh, took a couple of classes and realized this really wasn't wasn't my bag. And uh, without getting into all the reasons why, I really I really became depoliticized in college huh. and uh, uh, didn't didn't focus on it very much. Wasn't engaged at all. Um, didn't write for the school newspaper or join Republican clubs or any of that, which, which looking back is too bad as I've started to see just how many opportunities are out there for young, politically interested conservatives. Uh, it's a rich world. You can do all kinds of neat stuff. Um, and I, I didn't do any of it. Um, it really wasn't until, um, after grad school, my first job was at a small Christian college in Denver, Colorado Christian University, oh, yeah. um, uh, where the president was a guy named Bill Armstrong, who was a former U.S. senator from Colorado. Cool guy. Yeah, he, he was a, a, a giant in many ways um, and uh, 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 intellectually, politically, even, even in his stature, sort of like Colson. He, he mm. was a big personality. He was a big man. Mm. Uh, too, and and uh, he got uh, uh, he got far in life because of his um, many qualifications and and principles. Mm. He was just a a, a a deeply principled man who um, uh, uh, believed what he believed and and did uh, things in line with what he believed. And so, as president of Colorado Christian University, he brought all of those same characteristics to bear. And really, I think it's fair to say, wanted to turn this sort of fledgling Christian college into a, a Hillsdale of Christian higher education, a mm. place that was going to be deeply rooted in faith, but also instill in students um, and faculty and staff um, uh, the tenets of uh, conservatism. Mm. Uh, he called these the strategic objectives, and they included things like an originalist reading of the Constitution, an appreciation for the contributions of Western civilization to human society, um, free markets uh, and free enterprise, and so on and so forth. And unlike most of my colleagues uh, who couldn't have cared less about any of these things, I was uh, reawakened um, by uh, uh, the speakers that he would bring in to teach faculty and staff and students about these issues. Uh, One of the most memorable ones for me um, was a guy named Michael Novak, Mm. who um, worked at the American Enterprise Institute for um, 30 years or more, a Catholic theologian, um, uh, and political theorist who um, wrote a seminal book in the 1980s called The Spirit of Democratic Capitalism, the, uh, the basic thesis of which is uh, you need three things to flourish as a society, uh, Judeo-Christian values, limited government, and free enterprise. Hmm. And um, he, he makes a case for those things from an explicitly Judeo-Christian worldview. And as a person who'd been a Christian my entire life and uh, did four years at a Christian college, uh, for undergrad and uh, two more years at a Christian college for grad school and worked at a Christian college. I'd never heard this before my, in my entire life. No one had ever told me that, taught yeah. me that uh, the things that I thought were true uh, were indeed true and were consistent with uh, my faith. Hmm. So I just started de- diving in uh, deeper from there. Okay. 
No, that's interesting because um, you kind of outlined it a little bit. You could say that Novak provides kind of a bedrock base for understanding conservatism with those three principles. I think a lot of conservatives at least would agree with his with his ideas there. But let me let me just put it to you this way. What is a conservative? Mm. You know, I think uh, if you asked 100 different people who describe themselves as conservatives, you'd probably get 100 different answers. And so it's good that you asked me here today because I have the right one. <laughs> uh, uh, the question itself is uh, 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 tough to, to pin down. It is. Um, this is a, a, a philosophical idea. It has many different forms. We could talk about the prefixes and suffixes, the neoconservatives and proto-conservatives and um, all the rest. Um, uh, for me, I think a helpful question um, uh, touches on something we've already talked about, which is which is books, right? I mentioned mm-hmm. Novak and the spirit of democratic capitalism. And what you'll find is if you're a young conservative, especially, there are all these book lists out there for you. This is what you should read in order to understand our, our way of thinking about, That's right. about That's right. politics. But you don't see that uh, on the other side. In my entire life in politics, I've never heard a progressive say to another progressive, young or old, you really need to read these 10 books to understand progressivism. Mm. Why is that? Why aren't there young progressive training programs where they sit down with um, with Paul Ehrlich and, and Rachel Carson and, and Marx or, or whoever it might be? It's even kind of difficult to think of who those yeah. in, in thought leaders would be in progressivism. Um, whereas with conservatism, it's you need to read Bastier's The Law, and you need to read the Federalist Papers, and you need to read Hayek, um, and you need to read Henry Hazlitt, and uh, on and on and on. Um, I think that gets to our answer. What is conservatism? It's a, it's a belief that there are certain truths that are uh, permanent and, and timeless, truths about the nature of man especially, and truths about um, the world. Uh, the natural law, how things are ordered, and that if we want to flourish, what we need to do is align our ways of life, our public policies, our behaviors, uh, the way we organize society uh, in line with those timeless truths. And if we do that, then we can expect to flourish. Whereas progressivism says um, human uh, uh, identity is malleable, and we can always do more, and we can always do better. And there's a new idea out there that is yet to be tried that might be the key to unlocking human flourishing. Um, if you've watched Star Trek, you kind of get progressivism, mm. right? This 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 idea that you have a, a, a an unending search for an ideal, whereas conservatism would say, no, we know what is the ideal, mm. and we kind of know we're probably never going to get there in this life. But in light of that. What's the best that we can do? And let's look to the past to find some of those answers. Wow, that's fun that you went to Star Trek. I wasn't expecting that, but I, I can see it just quickly in what you're saying. And if we want to continue with the kind of pop culture slash entertainment angle, which is a helpful one, you know, you think about like The Hobbit, hmm. uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, something like that on the conservative side. Um, even the fiction of like a Wendell Berry, for example. Um, not to say that either of those authors would would want to be tagged with everything we're saying here or something like this. But let's just go with, uh, for example, the vision of of uh, of Tolkien in The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. You have this kind of localized life with quiet pleasures, domestic pleasures. Y- you have a power um, greater than the self that wants to devour others mm. 
and uh, and and take from them and is essentially cloaked. It's not it's not right there, easy to see. It's kind of like you were talking about with progressivism. It's sort of like where does air come from? I mean, it, it's just the air we breathe mm-hmm. today. Um, and yet, this this vision of life in Tolkien's work, let's say, let's just focus on him, is I would say pretty conservative. Um, it understands nature, like you're talking about, to be fixed. People have good in them. Uh, and we would say from a theological perspective, that's because mankind is the image of God. And yet people also have a tremendous capacity for evil. And in theological terms here, we would say that that's because of the fall, the actual historical fall of Adam and Eve, Genesis 3. So um, I would want to make clear as a theologian that Christianity and conservatism are not the same thing. Uh, so, you know, sometimes you get the question, do I have to be a conservative to be Christian? But I guess the technical answer would be no. But if you're going back to these first principles, which you're helpfully pointing us to, there's a lot of overlap, at the very least, between the historic conservative worldview and the Christian worldview that, by the way, predates the the American founding, the revolution or something like this. Conservatism, I think we could say, is older than that um, in these senses. Yeah, and uh, that's a a critical reminder. We should talk more about that. I also think we need to um, be careful that people understand that conservatism and republicanism is not the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, To be a Republican is to be a member of a political party. Uh, The the nature of that party, the issues that are on the table, the positions that that party takes on the issues of a time is constantly evolving and changing. The Republican Party of Lincoln's era is different from the Republican Party of Teddy Roosevelt's era, which is certainly different from the Republican Party of of today. And I think we've experienced yet another revolution in that ways in 2016 that we're still trying to figure out the implications of. Whereas conservatism is consistent. Um, It it may take different forms and people may emphasize different aspects of it, but this fundamental belief about the nature of man and what we know to be true and ordering ourselves in light of what we know to be true as opposed to some unforeseen other that could be possible, um, I think is consistent Mm -hmm. throughout all of that. And, uh, and I think you're right about, um, about truth that's mm. transcendent, um, that uh, uh, what Tolkien was describing um, was true, and, and it was animated by Tolkien's faith. Um, uh, I am not an expert on Tolkien, but uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, uh, it was also uh, at least partly inspired by what he saw happening around him historically right. and politically. Um, uh, in Europe uh, in the middle of the 20th century, right? So mm-hmm. he was witnessing uh, the, the good versus evil right before his eyes and taking note himself of the transcendent truths that were at play in, in what he was watching. And um, we can see that in our own lives in different contexts too. Uh, we don't have to any, look any further than um, the ongoing uh, extermination of, of unborn children to see that the fight for good and evil um, is still all around us. Absolutely. Uh, you think about how Tolkien and Huxley and Orwell and others in that same kind of era, mid-20th century, really did give voice to the evil of the big state, whatever you want to call it, massive government, totalitarian government. That's one of the key principles of conservatism. You've already mentioned it, but just to draw that out for a minute, um, conservatives are going to be those, and, and they're a very varied bunch and the conservative past, we should say, is not a perfect past. Uh, this isn't a movement composed of perfect people. There are real flaws that we can identify in the conservative tradition, so-called as well. But fundamentally, conservatives are those who have refused to practice a political m- messianism, um, 
a messianic political identity. Uh, in other words, they do not believe that the state is made to or fitted to save them, uh, uh, give them everything they need, even give their life meaning. In fact, conservatism would argue that many of the things that most uh, give life meaning are those which the state does not in any way impinge upon. At the same time, conservatives are going to say ordered liberty is a good thing. So we're not talking about anarchism here. Uh, we're talking about you know an ordered understanding of the world, authority deriving from God himself and being actually a gift to mankind, though, of course, as we've we've both said, that gift can be abused. Yeah, I think that's right. At least um, it has been right and, and should continue to be the way that conservatism is manifest. But you, t- you started this interview by talking about um, how politics has become sort of this all-consuming, ever-present reality in our lives. And I think conservatives are guilty of that, mm. too. Um, I think the, the politics of identity is very real and very strong, and that's just as true as conservatives as it is of progressives. Mm. We have the pundits and authors uh, that we like and that we trust implicitly without questioning, and we have those that we distrust and dislike implicitly without questioning. Mm. Um, We uh, have knee-jerk reactions to certain political questions that we may not have thought through at a deep level um, or read about or researched or gone to subject matter experts to learn more about um, because our team uh, comes out on the side of something, and so that's the side that we defer to. And um, that's troubling. Uh, uh, we, we must do better, especially as, as, as Christians, to ensure that um, whenever we're confronted with a political question, not only are we doing our best to be objective about, uh, about that issue and, and to make sure that uh, what we understand is, is factual and accurate um, and, and consistent with Scripture, um, we also uh, uh, need to make sure that we are not allowing ourselves to um, uh, f- uh, make an idol out of our, our politics and the, and the possibility mm. of our politics. Um, I work in politics. I think politics is one way that we seek the welfare of the city mm. in which we live, but it's not the only way. And, um, and it certainly isn't uh, the main or even a way that God intends to fulfill his ultimate plan for, um, for our redemption and for the redemption of the world. Let's not forget, God isn't a conservative or a progressive uh, or a Republican or a Democrat. God is a monarchist, <laughs> and he has every intention of establishing a kingdom on earth where he sits on the throne. And, uh, and he's the only king uh, that we can ever hope to do that uh, perfectly, which gets into some political questions for our time, but one of them is understanding the limits of public policy and of, and of politics. And I think as Christians, we need to heed the many warnings of Scripture, Old Testament with, with Daniel, all the way through to some of the writings of Paul and Peter, where we're described as sojourners and exiles living in this world. This is not our home. Um, we are to uh, be present, to get married, to marry our children off, to plant gardens, to build homes, to work, to seek the welfare of our city while at the same time um, holding all of those things in tension as we wait for um, our heavenly home uh, yet to come. That's, that's important, what you were just saying, uh, and it relates to a point that I try to tease out from time to time, and it's this. Conservatisms, conservatives excuse me, are sometimes seen as those who want to nostalgically return to this halicon past. So in other words, to be a conservative is to be backward-looking. 
I I think there are people who sadly fit that stereotype, you know, and, and even you and I perhaps can look back. We're imperfect. We can see how we might have fit into that stereotype at times or something like this. But fundamentally, that's actually not what a conservative is. Um, my dad worked in forestry in Maine, which meant he walked the woods of Maine for a living. Pretty cool living, mm-hmm. if, you, if you ask me. And he would frequently be asked in his business as a forester to draw up what was called a conservation plan for mm-hmm. a plot of land. What he had to do in terms of that conservation plan was allow that plot of land to flourish. So, you know, some trees have to be cut down, some have to be nurtured. Mm-hmm. Some new species have to be brought in, these sorts of things. Uh, Clearly, I know a ton about forestry, but I digress. (laughs) Um, That strikes me as very similar to what a conservative actually should be. Again, we don't always live up to this, but it's not somebody, in other words, who's trying to make the forest, let's say, like it was 20 years ago. That's insane. You can't make the forest like it was 20 years ago, even if you tried. It's somebody who is trying to make this plot of land, namely the whole earth, but then most of us just get a tiny little corner of it flourish and thrive and the good things endure, the permanent things remain. Um, do you think that's accurate? Of co- Yeah, absolutely. I, I was just thinking about um, uh, these other political streams, this sort of agrarianism that almost uh, transcends the, the progressive conservative divide. You have, um, you have people who, who have this vision of sort of like hobby farms and uh, uh, trading sugar for salt. And that's the ideal way of doing community. And in one sense, mm. there's something deeply conservative about that. And it's certainly reminiscent of a of a prior era where my values and yours were probably more widely shared. Mm-hmm. But there's also something really progressive about that in this mm-hmm. sort of like farm to table, organic, uh, 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 nurturing the land and being one with creation sort of mysticism that's yes. part of that too. Um, but if we look at the narrative of scripture, we see uh, Genesis in a garden and then uh, this narrative arc is completed with uh, a, a kingdom in a city, mm. right? And technological development, economic development um, is a fact of life. Uh, it's referenced in scripture. It's acknowledged. It's part of the plan. And I think as people who recognize that there are timeless truths in a created order, we also have to recognize that things do change. And oftentimes those changes are for the good. Um, And sometimes uh, we need to ask ourselves, okay, is change coming? Is it good? Is it inevitable? And where might it need to be uh, constrained Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, or at least uh, uh, um, managed in ways that uh, aren't going to be harmful? And we see this especially in, in the area of science, of course, and I think one of the criticisms of conservatism is, is, is often that we aren't scientific and we don't appreciate scientific advancement. Um, uh, I, I always find it ironic that I'm accused of being anti-science mm-hmm. by people who can't tell us when life begins. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, that notwithstanding, uh, uh, things like um, the possibilities of genetic uh, manipulation with things like CRISPR, which is this technology that can go in and cut off little pieces of your genetic code and replace them with other pieces. So if you've got um, some genetic abnormality in utero, in development, they can fix that for you before before you're born. Well, uh, certainly we'd say, wow, um, opportunities uh, uh, for, for potential healing, for the eradication of disease, um, that, that sounds good. But um, a conservative will say, 
hold on, Mm -hmm. let's pull the reins on this a little bit and just make sure we know what we're getting into because we've been down this path before, right? Uh, And and we've had catastrophic consequences of um, testing uh, scientific ideas on minority populations, for example, Mm. on the disabled. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and all that has been to our great shame. Yeah, I, I think that's well said. I think you could say if you wanted to be a little cheeky, and, and who doesn't, um, the conservative is truly the progressive mm. because the conservative is the one who is trying to conserve for a reason. In other words, it's, it's, not, it's not because you want to stare at your tableau on your wall of the way things used to be. At least that shouldn't be the way it is. It's that you want there to be a body politic for your children that is at least somewhat stable, somewhat healthy, uh, offers them some opportunities. Conservatives, I don't think, do a great job of articulating these kind of core identity commitments. Um, I, I think we allow ourselves to be placed in a box and trapped in a corner. But again, I would just argue in terms that are resonant with what you're saying here, that the conservative is the one who is looking ahead to the future. Mm. And that resonates at a deep level. Again, Christianity and conservatism are not the same thing, but that resonates with biblical Christianity, gospel-driven Christianity, Christ-centered Christianity, because we want there to be uh, a church. Uh, we want our children specifically to enter that church and be that that church and be the light of Christ. On the earth. Um, so, so there's a lot of resonance, I think you could say, between, between the two. Absolutely. I love that. Uh, only a conservative can be uh, truly progressive. I'll give you another one. There's nothing more illiberal than a liberal in our current political context. Um, mm. And uh, this is an area where I think uh, conservatives probably um, are, are reaping a little bit of what they, what they sow on some fronts. Uh, there was a time when uh, religious freedom was not part of the discourse when it came to American conservatism mm. and not within American Christianity. You had organizations like the Beckett Fund defending uh, Sikhs in lawsuits and Native Americans trying to smoke peyote or whatever it was, and, and we didn't have a lot to say about the rights of those groups. All of a sudden, our cultural dominance went away and uh, religious freedom appeared, rightly so, back on the scene. I should say back on the scene here at a Baptist seminary, knowing that mm-hmm. the Baptist history, when it comes to religious freedom, mm-hmm. there was a time when we were a persecuted minority or at true. least a member of a minority faith. And we did get the importance of religious freedom. But That's as we true. grew in cultural power and and uh, uh, and influence, we sort of neglected the the religious rights of, of other groups outside of our of our world. And uh, and now we're back in that position in many ways. Uh, meanwhile, on the on uh, on the progressive side, they have no tolerance for people like you and me uh, and our beliefs. We're, we're seeing it all over the place, not just with bakers and photographers and all those instances, but this very week, Mike Pompeo is in confirmation hearings to become the new Secretary of State, and he's being boycotted by the Human Rights Campaign and uh, Democratic members of the Senate uh, because of his views on on marriage and human sexuality. Um, uh, increasingly there's a litmus test in their minds for your right to participate in the public square. And uh, I, I was told recently by the, um, the lobbyist for the ACLU here in Kansas that he, he hoped that we might be able to be on the same side of one of these issues someday. And I said, well, I, I hope so too. That'd be good. And he said to me, yeah, if there was ever a, uh, an instance where a student was praying quietly alone 
at school and they were told they couldn't do that, we'd, we'd totally have your back. Wow. And I just thought, okay, th- th- this is where the line has been drawn. Yes. Purely personal, private expressions of faith are okay. But anything beyond that, and, and we're probably going to have a problem. And the strangest thing is that we all are living out our convictions. We're all living out our, our worldview. But um, religious people, painting broadly here, have been construed as those who bring their beliefs into the public square as if, you know, they're bringing in live ammunition mm-hmm. or something into a, you know, a preschool or something like this. When in reality, we all bring our beliefs into the public square. Everyone does. It's why um, work on these kind of issues is so vital. Our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom, we could name other organizations as well, are doing great work. And you you actually... Um, you landed in national news, basically, not long ago, because uh, with the Kansas Republicans, you introduced a resolution about transgender identity. And uh, it was a great resolution. Uh, it did not in any way incite some sort of you know, backlash against folks who would identify as transgender. It simply laid out uh, what it means to be a human being as a man or a woman and, uh, and, and indicated that we cannot re-engineer society according to this newfound understanding of identity. But you got you got two things actually. You got a lot of pushback, and you got a lot of support. Um, I thought what you did was was tremendous, uh, and I'm glad to publicly commend you on it. But walk us through what that was like mm. a few months back. Yeah, there definitely was a lot of pushback, and it and it wasn't partisan pushback. Mm. Uh, I think I was the most unpopular person at the Kansas Republican State Convention. Uh, because of that resolution. And that's why I, I want to be careful to ensure that we're, we know we're talking about conservative ideas and not Republican ideas, because increasingly sure. the Republican Party is, um, I think, fading away from uh, what I would consider to be some of the um, uh, core tenets of a conservative worldview that we mm. must not allow ourselves to walk away from, like the idea that there are two sexes, for example. Um and, uh, and you're right. I, I, I just look around and think um, there's this great story. Uh, are you familiar with Hans Christian Andersen? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, uh, a Dutch author in the 19th century uh, who wrote a short story about an emperor who was approached by two swindlers who claimed to have this magical cloth. And it's only visible to people who are not idiots and are qualified for their job. Those are the two qualifications for being able to see this cloth. And they bring it in supposedly before the emperor. And uh, of course, he can't see it because it isn't there, but he doesn't want to be thought to be either an idiot or unqualified for his job. So he pretends to be able to see it. And then he instructs several of his ministers to inspect the fabric just to see how they respond, to see if anyone will, will question this lingering doubt he has about whether there's actually any fabric there or if the problem is with him. And of course they all fall into the same trap of not wanting to be the one guy who's thought an idiot and unqualified for his job. And before you know it, he's parading down the streets of the city and all of the citizens are uh, uh, clamoring about the beauty of his new robes. And it's only a small child who points to this emperor in the parade and innocently says, he's not wearing any clothes. Mm. And the child is quickly hushed and, and, and everyone continues on sort of in their shame, knowing that they've all allowed themselves to be duped by lie out of fear. 
And uh, that's the world we live in right now when it comes to the issue of human sexuality. We literally live at a time where if you believe that you're either a boy or a girl and you're willing to acknowledge that there are somewhat rare, legitimate instances of um, uh, where, where sexual identity is not immediately intersex intersex conditions and those sorts of things. Those are real, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about an ideology that says your sex, your presented sex that is biologically evident is not the same thing as this idea called gender that you get to choose for yourself. And that is ultimately more important than your biological sex, because of course the natural recourse, if you have a gender identity that doesn't uh, ring true with your biological sex is to change your body to conform to your gender identity. Um, And we're all just kind of going along with it. Mm. Like this is fine. The dog on fire (laughs) in the room. Uh, Cause I don't know, people don't want to be called names or they don't understand the issues or, um, or they want to be invited to all the right things, or they think that somehow this is going to cost them something. Um, uh, my belief, A, is it's wrong, and uh, and it's not just wrong, but because it's wrong, it's harmful. Right. And that people who are struggling with very real um, uh, uh, issues when it comes to um, their own uh, self-identity need our compassionate, caring, love, and and mercy. They need us to care enough about them to actually help them and not just to allow them to continue to persist. Um in 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 a in a in brokenness and in and in um, pain, um, uh, and also that if we have the courage to lead to tell the truth, that there are a whole bunch of people out there who know who have the moral intuition to know this isn't right, this is crazy, and we're not going to be allow ourselves to be dominated by uh, what is truly a, a radical new idea. That's exactly right. Uh, Christian political officials are not responsible for bringing full-fledged systematic theology into the public square. So let's say that up front. But it is shocking how quiet the church has gone, uh, and I'm thinking now in terms of you know the, the teaching core of the church on these kind of issues, and we have psychologized these matters. So we have to be very clear that um, it's wrong to do these things. You use that language, and you're, you're dead right there, actually. It's wrong to embrace a cross-gender identity. It's, it's wrong to wear the clothes of the opposite sex. It's wrong to allow a six-year-old to think that they can take on, you know, uh, the, the clothing and presentation of a girl if they're a boy, or vice versa. So the church needs to be clear about this. The pastors and theologians of the church need to be clear about this. And then we desperately need people in the public square who will take these truths and make them operable uh, at the policy level, not because we hate people who disagree with us. Again, we don't always live up to our ideals, do we? You and I don't. Um, but not, that's not what we're motivated by. It's not hatred. It's actually love, which is, which is what you said, just to underline that. It's that we love people. If somebody has a terminal diagnosis, we do not love them by tricking them into thinking they are fine. Um, In the same way, we have to tell the truth in the church and then also in the public square. we got to wrap up in just a minute, but a figure who has done this in recent days, uh, and he's a quirky figure. I don't think he's, uh, you know, an evangelical Christian or something like this, and you have to interrogate uh, a given thinker's ideas with care in all matters. 
but Jordan Peterson in Canada dared to speak up about this transgender pronouns bill in Canada not long ago. And it did two things, <laughs> similar to what I was saying your own courageous stance did. It caused tremendous pushback, backlash. It also galvanized people in an unprecedented way in the last 15 years of Western public life. Somebody dared to be like the little boy in the Hans Christian Andersen story and say, that's not true. I, I, and it's not that actually Peterson, in his case, refuses to, uh, to recognize those who identify as transgender by their preferred pronoun in his classes, he has said very publicly he actually will recognize them in those terms, but he will not be compelled to do so by law because that is compelling a fiction. Um, I'm, I'm struck as we wrap up by the power of even one person's witness. I mean, you did this in, in Kansas, and it made, like I said, national headlines. Uh, you've got a ton of positive response. People have been really encouraging, speaking opportunities, all this sort of thing. Uh, when someone actually does stand up to bring this full circle to where we started and and advocate for the truth, um, and then we would say where Christ, uh, where conservative principles reflect the truth, stand up for conservative principles, people respond. Yeah, I, I got to be on the City of God podcast. I mean, that alone has made it <laughs> worthwhile. I think we all fancy ourselves as the kind of moral leaders who, if we were living at the time of Wilberforce, we would have been standing right there next to him. Mm. If we were living at the time of Bonhoeffer, we would have been right there with him. If we were there in the civil rights movement, we'd be holding hands and and walking across bridges with the icons of of that movement. Mm -hmm. Well, it's here. The time is now. Mm -hmm. This is our issue. There are a couple. We have the crisis over human sexual identity. We have the extermination of unborn lives. And those are the two most pressing concerns, I think, in our world right now. So the question is, do you, do you mean it? Are you, are you going to – this is your moment to stand up and have the conviction or, or not. Um, and uh, uh, unfortunately, I think um, too many Christians have decided that uh, at the end of the day, they have other priorities. And they can rationalize those. And, um, uh, and I get that. By the way, there's a wrong way to stand in the public square sure. and be convictional, and we all know what that looks like. That's not what we're talking about. But to speak the truth in love and to be willing to suffer the consequences of that is um, is our duty. This is what um, the disciples of Christ did um, uh, in the temple when they were told to stop preaching about Jesus, and they said, we can't. And they were beaten, and they walked away rejoicing that they had the honor of suffering like their Savior suffered. That's our calling, too. Hmm. And, and this is the moment to do it. Wow. Powerful. Well, Eric, I'm very thankful for you being on the podcast today. You have indeed reached the highest echelons of public influence and, and so on and so forth. So we're happy to um, affirm that. In all seriousness, I, I appreciate you very much, your courage, your witness, your influence. I pray it only grows in days ahead. So thanks for being on today. Thanks, Owen. Thanks for listening to City of God, a podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God in the city of man. 
Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry context. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today.